This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Victoria Lynch, a postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health in New York. We'll be discussing waterborne diseases associated with tropical storms in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Lynch. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's start off with what is stormwater? Sure. So stormwater is the runoff that flows over land and impervious surfaces like roadways or parking lots after intense rain or snowmelt events. And it is generated when this water accumulates faster than it can be absorbed into the ground or contained in storm drain systems. Is it different than flood water? Not really. Essentially, they're synonyms. Technically, flood water can accumulate unrelated to a storm event. Um, so I'd say storm water falls in the category of flood water, but floods can occur via numerous events. And so it, it doesn't, there doesn't have to be a storm to generate flood water. Ah, gotcha. Um, what kind of pathogens can end up in storm water? Just generally, I know we're going to talk about specifics a little later. Sure. Well, if you picture flooding in any environment, rural, urban, or any type of flood, river floods, flash floods, pathogens in those flooded environments can be suspended and mobilized by the flood water or the storm water, if we're specifically looking at storms. So the kinds of pathogens that end up in storm water really depend on the environment. The two main categories are pathogens that are natural inhabitants of the environment and those that are not. So for that first category, natural inhabitants, their presence is not necessarily a sign of contamination, but they can be mobilized by stormwater and then present at higher levels in water that people interact with. But they do naturally inhabit and live in a range of water sources. The second category is pathogens that are not natural inhabitants of the water, and therefore their presence is an indication of contamination. And broadly, these pathogens are found in human sewage, livestock waste, or wildlife waste. So any pathogen that can infect those you know, people, livestock, wildlife, can end up in stormwater. So there are these pathogens that can make people really sick? The short answer is yes. The severity depends on age and the underlying health status of people who become infected. So for most people, these infections are relatively mild. They cause gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that are manageable if quite unpleasant and disruptive. For people who are older or immunocompromised, they can be very serious and potentially life-threatening if they lead to disseminated infections. For very young children, really children under the age of five, two pathogens in particular can be very serious. That's E. coli and cryptosporidium. And we can talk about the specific pathogens a bit more later, but E. coli can lead to hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is a serious kidney disease that can be life-threatening. And repeated cryptosporidium infections in young children, particularly those that are malnourished, can lead to stunted growth. So while, again, the vast majority of cases are mild and unpleasant, there can be very serious cases among older, very young, and immunocompromised people. 
I'll also note here that Legionnaire's disease caused by the Legionella bacteria is its own case, separate from what I just discussed. These are primarily opportunistic infections that are very serious, have a high mortality rate, and infect people who are immunocompromised or elderly. So you mentioned the two different kinds of pathogens in the stormwater, but so the unnatural ones, the sewer, sewage, and that sort of thing, how do they get in the water in the first place? Most of the path for these, these pathogens that are not natural inhabitants of the water, they can enter bodies of water that we use for drinking water, irrigation, recreation, via contamination events. I like to think of it as three primary routes of contamination. The first are combined sewer overflows or sewage bypasses. And this happens when, as the result of stormwater rushing and inundating in systems, it overwhelms the sewer and is discharged directly into receiving waters. And those are waters that we can use for recreation and potentially for drinking water. And this occurs in typically older systems where sanitary sewers, so that that comes from our homes, apartments, and offices, ends up in the same pipe as stormwater drains. And when, again, when these are inundated, that combination of both stormwater and sanitary sewage from our homes ends up directly discharged without treatment. The next primary route would be flooding near farms in agricultural areas. There is often some animal waste is often stored in these blurry facilities, and those can be left open. And when flooding occurs, the flood water, the stormwater can interact with blurry or just animal waste that's present on farmland, mobilize those, those pathogens, and contaminate nearby water. And I'll note there that that can be of particular concern if the water that is contaminated is then used to irrigate crops. And then finally, contamination can occur just in the natural environment. If you have wildlife that have infectious diseases, very common that they do, then if their waste is present in the natural environment and a storm occurs and that stormwater is mobilizing pathogens in the environment, that will just be deposited into lakes, rivers, streams, other bodies of water in the natural environment. Okay, so how do people end up getting sick from this contaminated stormwater? Are they drinking it, like people swimming, sucking it in? What's happening here? Yes, that is one very important route. And I want to note here that most of the work on stormwater and waterborne disease is observational and relies on our understanding of likely transmission pathways. To rigorously establish causal pathways, we would need much more detailed water quality and epidemiological data that would enable us to determine specific sources of contamination and infection. So when I speak about this, I'm building on what we know about pathogen biology, sources of contamination, and flood dynamics. So I just want to kind of have that as a disclaimer that a lot of my research and research in this field is based on plausible explanations of what we know, but we are really missing a lot of granular water quality and epidemiological data. So just with all of that said, the likely routes of exposure for our contaminated drinking water, exposure in natural water used for recreation, 
and potentially direct exposure to stormwater after major floods. How long can these pathogens stay in water sources after a storm? That varies by pathogen. For the pathogens that are natural inhabitants of the environment, they are always present in water sources. So as I noted before, a storm may affect their concentration. For the other pathogens that enter the water sources as a result of contamination events, they can persist for a few days, up to, in some cases, 18 months. Wow, 18 months would be really hard to track it back then, right? Yes, it poses a real challenge for, as I said earlier, kind of establishing these really clear causal pathways. You mentioned a minute ago drinking water. Wouldn't typical water treatment get rid of these pathogens out of our drinking water? Yes, and I should say that I'll start by saying that with effective monitoring and treatment, almost any amount of contamination can be addressed. But here we need to look at few exceptions or places not where effective treatment fails. So starting with drinking water, it does depend on your source. So many people rely on private wells for drinking water, and those are not regulated. And so it's on the property owner to ensure that their well is not contaminated with pathogens that could cause waterborne disease. The other source that we want to focus on is groundwater. And so many community water systems in the United States use groundwater instead of surface water for their drinking water source. For decades, groundwater drinking water sources were thought to be protected from most contaminations. And so they weren't regulated or regularly monitored. And it was only in 2006 that EPA introduced the groundwater rule. So now groundwater sources are supposed to be regularly monitored and treated if necessary. But I don't want to step too far outside of my area of expertise, but there is evidence that compliance and testing is not always enforced and that many as particularly smaller community water systems that use groundwater are not in compliance, especially in rural areas that rely on groundwater as a drinking water source. There can be issues with or struggles with compliance as a result of limited material resources and personnel. So those are two areas where drinking water is either not regulated because it's a private well or is supposed to be regulated, but there may be some challenges to accomplishing that. The other important source of contamination could be from wastewater treatment. And as I noted above, that when there are major storms and flood events, that stormwater can inundate sanitation infrastructure and lead to the direct discharge of wastewater into the environment. And while we are not typically drinking that untreated water, we can come into contact with it through recreation or just being proximate to floodwaters. Understanding that long-term granular studies have been done on tracking this, do we know how big a problem this is in the United States? The short answer here, again, is that we really don't know. Most cases of these infections are never captured by the healthcare system. And water quality analyses, especially pathogen-specific analyses, are rarely conducted, period, much less after 
storm events, which is what we would need to determine the extent to which specific storms are driving contamination and therefore transmission. I should note, though, that there was a 2021 estimate published in Emerging Infectious Diseases and led by Sarah Collier that estimated there were about 7.15 million waterborne illnesses annually in the United States. Now, most of these were mild ear infections, things like that, but I thought the value of that piece was that there is likely a tremendous burden of waterborne disease that we are largely unaware of. Taking a step back in terms of how big of a problem is this, what we do know is that the United States, in most places in the United States, we have deteriorating, aging, drinking water, and wastewater infrastructure. And we also know that as a result of increasing atmospheric temperature and climate change, we are at risk for more serious or severe storm events. And so while we don't know a lot about the specific burden of disease, I think we do know that from a, an infrastructure standpoint and then a vulnerability to extreme storms, we know that those are likely big and increasing challenges in the U.S. One more thing to add to the Halloween list. Are there areas where this is more of a concern? You talked about wells and that kind of thing, uh, say rural versus urban or does it matter anymore? Yes, it definitely matters. So most places in the U.S. experience severe storms, if not tropical cyclones, other types of severe storms, and many places are susceptible to flooding. I do think, however, that rural communities are most vulnerable due to overlapping risk factors. Many people in rural areas, as you noted, rely on private wells for drinking water, or on community water systems that use groundwater. And I described some of those risks earlier. These areas often also include agricultural regions where flood water can mobilize animal waste and contaminate water that's used for drinking water or for recreation. And finally, rural populations are in general in the US aging. And older people are at risk for these infections. They're more susceptible to the kind of serious outcomes that, that I described earlier. So this is not to diminish the risk faced by urban populations, particularly given that damage to a single urban water treatment facility can affect hundreds of thousands of people. So in no way diminishing that serious risk. I do see this as a particularly important issue for rural health in rural populations. So we've been discussing more storms and the likelihood of greater storms in the future. What about just individual stronger storms? Are they more likely to transmit pathogens to people? So this isn't the most satisfying answer, but maybe. And I think that really depends on how we define strong. So a storm can have really dangerous wind speeds but not necessarily bring a tremendous amount of rain or can have lower wind speeds, but move more slowly and lead to extensive rainfall accumulation and flooding. And depending on the type of storm, we may have different risks for the people affected. So for example, a storm with really high wind that 
kind of known well in advance, may lead to evacuation. And so the area may be at great risk, but if people have largely evacuated, their individual risk actually is reduced. So individual behavior is an important factor there. Conversely, a storm that has high wind and destroys the local wastewater treatment plant may not have a tremendous amount of flooding, but if wastewater treatment isn't effective, then we could have more contaminated water entering the environment. And so one of the motivations for the study published in EID was to try to gain some insight into how storm types might influence the transmission of these pathogens. But the kind of short answer is that there could be some counterintuitive associations here depending on whether the storm is bringing strong wind, rain, or both, and then how people react to that information. What time period did you cover in your study, and why did you choose those years? Our study period is 1996 to 2018. That includes 23 storm seasons, and in the Atlantic Storm Basin, the storm season is June through November. So we restricted our study to those months of the year. We used this time period because we had access to detailed data on storm characteristics for all of the storms that made landfall, named storms that made landfall during that time period. And by detailed data, I mean county-level data on wind speed, gust duration, daily and cumulative rainfall, and distance from the storm track. So take a minute here to tell us about your study. What were you looking for? Sure. The, the primary objective was to see if there was an association between tropical cyclonic storms and six waterborne or partially waterborne pathogens. To do this, we needed to define exposure to these storms, which isn't always straightforward, as they can be characterized by several variables that are often not well correlated. So as I just described, Storms can have high wind speeds, but not necessarily bring heavy rain. To account for this, we used three storm exposure variables, total rainfall, maximum sustained wind speed, and distance from the storm track to assess the association with cases of these waterborne pathogens. The second objective was that we wanted to see if, given an association, it varies by storm type. Um, And again, by that, I mean storms with high wind and high rain, or high wind but low rain, and so on. And we think that these pathogen-specific analyses are really important because in the absence of really granular, excellent water quality data, the type of pathogen may provide insight into sources of contamination that could inform future research. What pathogens did you specifically look at for your study then? So I'll start with pathogens that primarily cause gastrointestinal disease, and they are the parasites Cryptosporidium and Giardia, and the enteric bacteria Salmonella, Shigella, and Shigatoxin-producing E. coli. And then the last pathogen is different from those others. It causes respiratory infections, and that's Legionella, the bacteria Legionella, which causes Legionnaire's disease. And this is the only one that is a natural inhabitant of the environment. Those first five that cause gastrointestinal disease, those are all 
not natural inhabitants of the environment. And so they're introduced during contamination events. And the Legionnaires is the most deadly, I think you mentioned earlier. Yes, by far. Legionnaires disease has a very high mortality rate. It's a serious infection that primarily occurs among people who are elderly and or immunocompromised. And Legionnaires disease was discovered by the founder of the Emerging Infectious Disease Journal, Joe McDay. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but that's very exciting to hear. Legionnaires was a particular focus in my doctoral research. So I have, I wouldn't say affection for it, but I am particularly interested in its association with environmental factors. Yes, we're very proud of him. Okay, so salmonella and E. coli are, as you said, foodborne bacteria. And how do they get in the stormwater? Recognize earlier I said waterborne and partially waterborne. With salmonella and E. coli in particular, as well as with shigella, it is important to note that most cases are uh, foodborne. But, and this is part of my argument and work, that it is important to identify how storms and flooding could influence their transmission, even as it relates to foodborne outbreaks or cases. So both of these pathogens colonize livestock, namely poultry and pigs, and they could get into stormwater via flooding on farmland. This is of particular concern with storms and flooding near concentrated animal feeding operations that house thousands and thousands of animals at one time, and therefore generate tremendous amounts of waste that could carry these bacteria. While, again, most cases are foodborne, they can certainly enter the environment when flooding occurs near CAFOs or other farms. The other way that they could enter the environment is if people are infected and the bacteria are present in their waste, that that waste enters sewage systems. And if we have inundating floodwaters, stormwaters, those bacteria can enter the environment via combined sewer overflows or those bypasses that I described earlier. You talked about the data sources a minute ago. Tell us more specifically about what kind of data you used and how you collected it. I'll start by saying that I benefited from the incredible work of thousands of other people to conduct this study. So the surveillance case data came from CDC's National Notifiable Disease Surveillance System data set. And this is publicly available, though it was in an unwieldy format for this type of research. The data consists of lab-confirmed cases from hospitals, emergency department visits, and primary care visits that are reported to local health departments and then compiled by state health departments for submission to CDC. So I really I, I benefit from the incredible work of local and state health department officials for access to the case data. The storm data came from the excellent hurricane exposure data set compiled by Brooke Anderson at Colorado State. She and her team used gridded rainfall data and National Hurricane Center data to provide county-level estimates of storm exposure for all named tropical cyclonic storms that made landfall in the U.S. from 1998 to 2018. So again, I'm benefiting from really extraordinary work by other research groups. How long did you work on this study before you published it? I worked on this study for 13 months before I published it. And 
a lot of that, I should note, it was a project from my dissertation research, so it wasn't the sole focus for those 13 months. But the CDC data set is excellent, but it isn't designed for this type of research. So converting it into a format that we could use in statistical models did take a lot of time. And I am hoping to, having done it, I certainly don't want anyone else to have to do it, I am actually working on turning that into a data package that will be available for anyone interested in it. Oh, interesting. That was going to be my next question. Is it going to be made available? Well, that's terrific. I'm working on it as we speak. I'm I'm excited to save anyone else the time. Well, it's very public service-minded of you, and we appreciate it. And frankly, I think that's an enormous amount of wading through things in a mere 13 months and writing your article. What did you find after all of this work? Well, thank you. Quick summary is that there was an association between exposure to storms for some of the pathogens, but not all of the pathogens that I've described. And more specifically, we found that for the shigatoxin-producing E. coli infections, there was a 48% increase in case rates one week after storm events, that it was elevated for the second week after storm events, and then returned to baseline. For Legionnaire's disease, we found a 42% increase in case rates two weeks after the storm. And then for cryptosporidium, we found a 52% increase in case rates during the storm week that declined over the ensuing weeks. For the other pathogens, we found that there was largely no association with storm events, with the exception of Stigella, there was actually a slight decrease in case rates during the week of the storm. Didn't you find that storm-related rainfall had no effect on salmonella? Correct. We found that there was no association between exposure to storm-related rainfall or wind with the case rate for salmonella. And this was, again, in the absence of really granular data, I want to be careful about kind of overstepping what we know from the study. But one plausible explanation for this could be that salmonella is largely foodborne. And as a result, storms genuinely do not drive transmission, that there may be some transmission related to exposure to storm and flooding, but that it is really, no pun intended, drowned out relative to the dominant mode of transmission, which is foodborne transmission. The other kind of related to that is that there are so many foodborne outbreaks during these summer months that even if there is a signal, it might be hard to identify given that we actually don't have that many storm weeks. And so when we're just comparing weeks where a storm occurred to those without a storm, relatively, we don't have that that many. And so there might, and, and we have a number of foodborne outbreaks kind of as the background transmission, we might not be able to identify peaks associated with storm exposure. So it could be that there is genuinely no association, or it could be that we just don't at this point have the data to identify an association. I see. So you've mentioned many challenges in putting this all together. Is there a particular challenge that you faced during this study that you'd like to mention? I noted that it was time-consuming to 
kind of wrangle the data into a usable format, although I think that that's part of one's doctoral training. But I don't, I wouldn't say that was a challenge, although it was time consuming. The biggest challenge was reconciling the fact that, that these data aren't designed for resolved epidemiological studies. And so, for example, with the case data, that's reported at a state level. So for each week, we know how many cases were reported to the NNDSS data set in that month, but not at each county, much less each zip code. And so having to figure out how to rigorously account for the fact that the epidemiological data are at a state level when our storm exposure is obviously highly local, that was probably the biggest methodological challenge, though I am proud of how we accounted for that and included sensitivity analyses in the study design itself. You mentioned that you plan to make your data available for everyone to use in the future. How would you like to see it used? Thank you. I love this question. First, from a research and policy lens, I would really like to see an increased focus on drinking and wastewater infrastructure, as I think this is an incredibly important component of preparing for the effects of climate change and storm severity in particular. I also think that this study demonstrates the importance of pathogen-specific water quality data. And so I hope that this serves as an impetus for research universities, but also local health departments and departments of environmental protection at the city, county, state level, whatever the structure is in a given region, that it serves as an impetus for conducting epidemiological and water quality studies, particularly after storm events. I would also like to see this work motivate further focus on rural areas and rural communities. I do think that the vulnerability to infectious diseases in general, and certainly exposure to contaminated water, uh, severe storm events, is an issue of environmental justice. And that people who often have the fewest resources, whether they're elderly or immunocompromised or in rural areas, often have the fewest resources to respond and recover from storm events. And so I hope that this serves as a jumping off point of, you know, many, many people are studying this, but I hope it contributes to a renewed focus on storms and infectious diseases as an issue of environmental justice. From an individual point of view, I think that if you are someone who has a private well for drinking water, I would really encourage you to get it tested regularly and especially after storms with extensive flooding. So, in terms of, kind of research and science you can use, I hope that that's a, a take-home message. And then to the extent that one has control over it, there are things that people can do in their homes and neighborhoods to prepare for flood water, whether that's through kind of planting or kind of small changes to urban design. That is something that people can be involved in directly on their own property or get involved in their kind of local community government to advocate for that. Well, and then in addition to that, using your research, what future research do you think other people need to do or you yourself? At this point, I might sound a bit like a broken record, but I think the first step would be to implement even pilot projects to conduct 
epidemiological surveillance after major flooding and storm events. And to pair that with stormwater quality analyses, again, after storm events. And ideally, we would have that data for the entire U.S., but I think it's a pretty big challenge that if health departments at city, county, state level have the means to conduct pilot projects now, particularly in vulnerable areas like the southeast that that experience these really devastating cyclonic storms, I think that would be an excellent use of local health department and department environmental protection research funds. So that would be the kind of first step that I think is really important. Well, Dr. Lynch, tell us about your job and what made you interested in studying storms and diseases. Sure. I'm Now I'm a postdoctoral environmental epidemiologist at Columbia, which is also where I completed my PhD, but I didn't stray too far. My doctoral research focused on how climate affects or can be associated with waterborne diseases. And now as a postdoc, I've and expanding beyond just waterborne diseases to look more broadly at how extreme climactic events like storms, heat waves, essentially wildfires are associated with a broader range of health outcomes. Although I will always have a particular interest in waterborne disease. And in terms of why I kind of developed this as my focus, I think that extreme events can force reckonings in a way that slow-moving environmental events, unfortunately, don't. I think they can generate interest and activism and research focus that motivates change. And I think they also can lay bare some of the weaknesses in either our infrastructure, our public health infrastructure, our research focus and particularly can reveal inequity in those areas. So, again, not to in any way diminish the the very important work of looking at kind of daily temperature or daily rainfall or kind of continuous environmental changes, I do think that extreme events and storms have play a unique and critical role in setting research and policy agenda. And that's why I have, up until this point, uh, focused on extreme events, and in particular, tropical cyclonic storms. Well, considering how things have been lately, floods, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes uh, in abundance, I think you're going to have your work cut out for you in the next few years. And it sounds like it's going to be an exciting time, too. Thank you. I wish it weren't. I frequently say that I wish that this research wasn't necessary. But given that it is, I feel very, very lucky that I get to engage with it every single day and feel a bit more empowered instead of just seeing the incredible amount of uncertainty and instability in our climate and and feeling like I have no agency. So I would say it's, it's a huge privilege to be able to work on this with the obvious caveat that I wish it weren't necessary. Well, yes, (laughs) I think we can all agree with that. And so in the weeds here, as opposed to big major events like you're looking at, is there a certain pathogen that worries you the most? 
Yes. So Legionnaire's disease has by far the highest mortality rate of all the pathogens we've discussed and is therefore the most concerning. Its incidence has increased dramatically in the United States in the last 20 years. Now, that is likely due in part to greater awareness about Legionnaire's. So more people are being properly diagnosed, tested and diagnosed. But that aside, the combination of it increasing incidence and high mortality rate and the fact that it really affects people who are immunocompromised, particularly with respiratory infections, we do live in a country with an aging population. And after the last three years, a greater proportion of people are do have now respiratory conditions as a result of COVID-19 pandemic. So I think the combination of its incidence, its high mortality rate, and then just the kind of increasing number of people who might be susceptible in the first place, that's a single pathogen that I'm most worried about. The other way that I would interpret this question is looking a bit more at a population level. And as I've noted several times now, I am very concerned about populations that are vulnerable in rural areas that are vulnerable to both contamination events and then the infectious diseases themselves. And in those populations, E. coli and cryptosporidium can be very, very serious infections among elderly or immunocompromised people. And so from a population health standpoint, I am most concerned about older rural populations. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Lynch. I think you're probably a very busy person. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking the time and your interest in this work. It definitely serves as a motivator for me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the August 2023 article, Waterborne Infectious Diseases Associated with Exposure to Tropical Cyclonic Storms, United States, 1996 through 2018, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.